Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Nadim Hurri will be joining me today to speak about the Beirut port blast, as well as the political culture of impunity in Lebanon and the corruption of the political elite there. But before we get started, please don't hesitate to make a donation to the show by going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen get onto our mailing list and don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to YouTube to the channel The Analysis Hyphen News, like and subscribe and hit the bell that way you're notified every time there's a new episode. See you in a bit with Nadim Hori. Joining me now is Nadim Hori. He is the executive director of the Arab Reform Initiative in Paris. He's originally from Lebanon and worked for Human Rights Watch as a human rights lawyer for 13 years. He's also the author of the book, Without Protection, How the Lebanese Justice System Fails. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nadim. Um, Thank you for having me. Three years ago, on August 4th, 2020, the Beirut port blast sent the country reeling. There were 218 people who were killed in the blast. And since then, uh, the families of the people killed have not seen any justice. Um, Why don't we speak about how this culture of political impunity actually goes back to the post-Civil War era of 1990 and how it's sort of entrenched in political sectarianism? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the you know, in in August uh, 2020, a, a massive explosion happened at the Beirut port, uh, as you mentioned, almost 220 people died. Uh, entire uh, parts of the city were destroyed. Uh, it turns out the explosion was caused by uh, nitrate ammonium, which had been stored for years in very dangerous conditions. Uh, and even though the authorities knew about it, had not done anything. Um, there was a um, Domestic investigation launched, obviously, because that crime is just too big to ignore. Uh, But the political class has been obstructing it. And this domestic investigation has actually been suspended since December 2021. Um, A very courageous Lebanese judge, who really had uh, issued... um, accusations against a number of key political and security figures in the country um, basically kept getting uh, suspended from doing his investigation. The politicians filed over 25 requests to dismiss Bitar time and time again. And uh, finally, in January of this year, so January 2023, when Bitar tried to resume his investigation, uh, the country's public prosecutor, Hassan Awaidat, who himself is actually one of the people that had been charged by Bitar in the Beirut blast for not doing anything, uh, ended up uh, summoning uh, Judge Bitar for investigation himself, suspended it, and ordered the release of all three trial suspects. Um, and this is where we are at today, a domestic investigation that's paralyzed, families that don't have answers. Um, a large number of these families have joined with Lebanese civil society um, to actually ask the Human Rights Council if they can do an international fact-finding commission. But as we speak right now, 
There are no suspects in detention, and the investigation is completely paralyzed. Now, this pattern of impunity, um, I think, as you mentioned, is very much grounded uh, in Lebanon's recent history, particularly the post-war settlement, um, which really created a political culture of the elites, of the political elites. Uh, most of them were warlords from the civil war. With the end of the war, uh, they basically decided to divide up the pie in Lebanon amongst themselves with international backing. I mean, this was a deal that had been accepted at the time, and most of them traded uh, basically their uh, fighting fatigues uh, for fancy suits, and they became um, the the rulers of, of the country. Now, what's interesting is at the end of the Civil War, they passed a amnesty deal. And I mentioned that because I think that, that that is one of the anchors of this culture of impunity that we continue to suffer from. Now, the amnesty deal at the end of the Civil War, so that was 1990, was about crimes committed during the Civil War, uh, with a few exceptions. But they basically gave each other a blank check. And at the time, the Lebanese society was simply too exhausted, not sufficiently organized to mobilize sufficiently to overturn this amnesty deal. But instead of just it being a blank check for past crimes, it almost became a blank check for future crimes. Because now it became this basis of saying, well, we never held anyone to account. Well, why are you going to start with me? And why are you going to do this? Uh, and really, and I, and I mentioned it because I think this corruption uh, was very, uh, in my view, is directly connected to the explosion of the Beirut port because no one was being held accountable for anything. Everyone being hired by the state was not accountable to their immediate superior, but actually was accountable to the, what we call Zaim, basically these warlords, uh, usually affiliated with various sectarian groups which made sure people entered public service. They used the, you know, the state was their cash cow to buy services distributed in state, same hour. So basically, uh, the investigation around the port explosion, what it reveals is basically no one did anything. You know, everyone kept waiting for someone else to do it. Um, and, uh, and this has meant that this culture of impunity, you know, Lebanon continued to have political assassinations, for instance, uh, and not a single case has actually been on a uh to this day. And almost to add insult to injury, uh, some of those who were indicted in the port explosion by the judge, Pita, who's now you know been set aside, this investigation has been paralyzed. Uh, um, they ran last time for parliamentary elections that were held last year. And some of them regained their seats, even though they're actually wanted by a Lebanese judge. And supposedly they were not arrested because they could not be served. So how could they not be served? Because they cannot be found. Yet they're actually going around, you know, ran a campaign and managed to get reelected to parliament. Um, you know, this is, um, so that's the, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's today Lebanon is governed and has been governed now by a highly corrupt political class which uses sectarian ties to uh, distribute uh, 
what are state properties, right? So they've actually, they're redistributing people, services to people, but these are services that actually people paid for in the first place. And that's how they enforce uh, their hold. And that's how they manage to get reelected because uh, almost like a mafia-like system, they use these services to remind everyone, you know, I exempted you from paying fees on that. So you remember to vote for me. I got your son into the police. Remember to vote for me. Uh, I'd made sure that your uh, violation of the building code was not enforced. Uh, so you owe me a favor and you need to vote for me. It's really, unfortunately, as simple as that. Well, going back to 1990, when the reconstruction efforts were uh, beginning and you said there was amnesty for these warlords, why do you think that was? I mean, I know in many other you know, South American contexts or in African contexts where there's been fighting between different groups, sometimes certain factions are not actually prosecuted because there's a fear that there won't be some sort of unity going forward, that there won't be any you know, functioning power sharing in the government. And so sometimes that's a strategic decision not to actually prosecute some of the warlords who were committing all these um, crimes. Do you think that was one of the reasons or was it just, you know, pure corruption and incompetence? No, I think you're right. There was a, there was a sense uh, and the formula that ended the civil war, which these leaders that adopted in Arabic, it's la ralib wa la It was sort of this no, no victor, no vanquish. And it was based on this idea that uh, everyone committed crime, everyone as in the, all the different militias. So we're not going to put everyone in jail. But that narrative was false. I mean, there were civilians. There were people who never carried weapons. But they presented this as saying, look, we all just defended ourselves. Uh, and so we're not going to hold anyone accountable. Uh, so it was a deal amongst themselves. And it was a time as well. You have to remember in 1990, this is before uh, the Rwanda and Yugoslavia troubles. This international recognition that you cannot have these blanket amnesties had not really taken root very strongly. Um, and the Lebanese war had gone on for very long. The sponsors that ended uh, the war, it was really Saudi and Syria in the lead, but also with some international backing. Everyone had been exhausted, even internationally, by the Lebanese civil war, which had gone on for 15 years. Um, and the narrative that was sold was, okay, now war is over, we're going to do reconstruction, everyone's going to get rich. Uh, don't ask too many questions about the past uh, or looks towards the future. So, and it wasn't just that no one was held accountable. Um, no answers were given, for instance, to the families of the estimated 17,000 disappeared. I mean, one could have imagined a system where at least they would have had to say what happened to these people, where they were buried, in return of form of amnesty. No, it was just a blanket amnesty and uh, uh, nothing was died. And in the, the, in the immediate post-war aftermath, this, the, the, you know, actually, uh, one a researcher academic wrote a book called it The Spoils of Truth, Truth, T-R-U-C-E. Um, and I think it's a great book because it describes the system that was put in place at the end of the Civil War. And in a way, um, all these warlords were convinced to put down their weapons because they all had a state and basically the spoils of truth. And they all became incredibly rich. Um, they divided things amongst themselves. Uh, and also Hariri, who was the prime minister at the time, um, 
you know, I was in charge of rebuilding. Anyways, we can get into details, but basically they really divided up uh, almost as if it was a private fiefdom. And, you know, for a long time, the Lebanese went with it. Not everyone, obviously, but uh, there was money flowing. There was money from the diaspora. There were investments. Um, there was, I mean, now we're paying the price because maybe we'll talk about it. Lebanon's in the middle of a massive crisis. Uh, the Lebanese found was, do- uh, was thick to the dollar. Um, and so every time people, those who were still pushing for accountability were looked at like, oh, you're just reminding us of the bad old times. Let's just turn the page. And again, I think th- this is, uh, you know, ultimately this deal of this pact of an amnesty of impunity was a deal amongst uh, a handful of these uh, warlords. But what's important to note is they managed to have a lot of people bite into it by using sectarian card. So each leader said, look, why would I be prosecuted? I was defending my community. No, I was defending you. They presented themselves as the gatekeeper of their community but also they presented themselves to their community as the essential gateway for this community to access government services. So even at the public university in Lebanon, which is called the Lebanese University, uh, if you are going to be appointed as a university professor, if you belong to a particular confession, you have to be, in a way, accepted by your appointed leader to get you through. I mean, this is not written on any law or any paper, you know, it's just de facto. They just block each other. Um, you mentioned I, I worked for a long time as a human rights lawyer in Lebanon. We would try to bring a complaint, let's say, against a particular police officer, not a general, a police officer for a torture of LT. Uh, these complaints would get uh, stuck in the system because even for law ranking, they immediately, you know, people who would be accused, they immediately go see their za'im to intervene, how they're, uh, to, to make it stop. Um, and it's the same, you know, and they're really today, they're six old men, five to six old men that are still controlling the system. Um, and even though they, you know, every time, every now and then they fight amongst each other, but when there are real demands for structural change or accountability, just by miracle, they coalesce together and they oppose any uh, demands for change. So based on what you're saying, this sectarianism is something which is, you know, institutionalized. It's along religious lines, but these different groups don't necessarily just represent religion. They maybe represent other, you know, political cultures or ties to other, you know, countries. I'm thinking of Iran or, or Saudi Arabia. If I understood correctly, sectarianism was something which began even before the Civil War. So at the end of the Civil War, was there any motion or, you know, initiative to perhaps undo that system in search of something better? Or was that just not even considered because it would chip away at some of the, I guess, financial and political gains that these different groups had made? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a very good question. And and so... Lebanon, uh, I would say modern Lebanon, as which came into being with its current borders in 1920, uh, is a very small country, but also incredibly diverse. Uh, there are 18 recognized uh, religious communities of, of various you know, sects and so forth. And, there, and there's an actual geographical reason for this. 
Uh, Lebanon is mostly a mountainous region in one of the oldest inhabited parts of the land. So whenever there was a minority, they sought refuge, shelter in these mountains. And 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 just the, the, the model was um, to ensure that all these communities coexisted. It's called an associational model. Um, there was this sort of, even at the time of independence in the mid-40s, a sort of inter-elite pact that we will make sure everyone is represented. You know, everyone is a minority in Lebanon. Everyone is represented. Um, and at the end of the, um, you know, that system worked well for some time, uh, particularly uh, it avoided, uh, Lebanon avoided in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, falling into the trap of authoritarianism that we saw in other Arab countries because the power was sort of diffused amongst different communities. Um uh, but clearly, after the civil war, uh, there were demands. And the agreement that ended the civil war, which is called the Taif Agreement, named after the Saudi city where it was signed, was supposed provided a roadmap uh, for te- technically starting a process of desectarianizing the political system, or at least reducing it. And, and one of the main things and was supposed to create a Senate where in the Senate, the different communities will have their voices so they can have, you know, perhaps a, a veto over existential issues, but the, the regular day-to-day politics, what I was describing about you know, the policeman, every seat being assigned, that we would move away from that. Um, and this was part of the deal that ended the war, except those who ended the war never implemented. Uh, and now, you know, we're 2023, so it's more than 33 years later, and they haven't taken a single step to, to dismantle this system. If anything, what started out as back in the early days, even pre-war, a system where, yes, you know, the president is of a certain confession, the prime minister is from one, the speaker is from another, and so forth, uh, certain high-ranking officials, uh, almost like a cancer that metastasized, uh, it started going down the ranks. So uh, today, I was giving you the example of university professors. They're going to try to make sure that we have a quota of this many Christians, this many Muslims, from this confession, from that confession. Um, but again, it's not that people are, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the tricky part to explain is it's not that everyone has these blind loyalties, but as a citizen of the state, the day you go to ask to negotiate something, if you want to ask get a service, the state start treating you like a member of this community. So they force you, they corner you into this. And there have been movements. There have been movements since the end of the Civil War by civil society and others to, to try to deconfessionalize this. Uh, the latest uh, was in 2019, where there was a massive uprising in the streets um, where the slogan was, Kulun yani kulun, all means all, in the sense they're all corrupt. We want to move away from the system. But the system has proven to be incredibly resilient. And we can talk about you know, its resiliency. Part of it is linked to its financial power. Uh, so again, it's not just that they, uh, they keep their power because they can control access to state services. Over the years, they've also developed uh, classes of business people who are dependent on them. So it's your, your, your Zaim, your leader, uh, it's not just that you access public services by requesting their help. Sometimes you go and they will try to get you a private sector job through a business person who is close to them, 
and this person, this business person, a private citizen complies because they're also benefiting from the connections of the leader to, you know, for maybe paying less taxes. So you see how they've really, they've, they've, they've dismantled the system in a way that they've become the gatekeepers and it's become very hard to, to, to attack it frontally. Well, we've seen the devaluation of the Lebanese lira and crazy inflation in Lebanon, as well as, you know, footage of people protesting outside of banks, people not being able to withdraw their funds from banks. And I think, you know, this political corruption that you're speaking of is clearly represented in the the Lebanese central bank. So the head of the the Lebanese central bank until I guess it was July 31st uh, of, you know, this current summer, Riyad Salame, he was forced to step down because he's being, um, you know, he's being charged with uh, embezzlement, embezzlement of funds. There's also uh, the OCCRP who, I mean, they did numerous reports on him being involved with offshore companies who, you know, owned, I think, something like 100 million U.S. dollars worth of assets around the world and particularly in European uh, real estate markets. So it seems like uh, Mr. Salam is really well connected with the international financial elite. So would you see his corruption as part of a larger transnational capitalist class? Yeah. So, no, you're right. I think first, you know, the the we talked about the political and the sectarian pillar of the system, but what I was describing as this sort of post-civil war order had also a very strong financial and one of its architects was this Riyad Salim. Um, and uh, I think it took us years to understand just how important he was to the system and to the legitimacy of the system. And um, Lebanon experienced in the 90s and 2000s the sort of, you know, um, with his bosses of stabilizing the currency, uh, pegging it de facto and bringing in foreign money, most of it from the diaspora, there was a sense of all oh, the countries doing well, it's wealthy, and it's a way that they bought in a way peace and quiet until the money ran out. You know, it was, I mean, you can describe it basically it was a Ponzi scheme. And, and what's interesting in the Ponzi scheme that this wasn't just the central bank. Uh, Lebanon had a very developed uh, financial sector. The banking sector was one of its uh, sources of pride historically in terms of the economic model. And then it, we, you know, we all discovered that actually much of this sector uh, had also become quite corrupted, and for its survival, depended on the central bank and financial engineering by the central bank. So, just to say, first, the first pillar here is the financial aspect to it that's very much connected to the political order. But also, what's interesting is that this financial, well, this financial class, these these elites were not just constrained. So uh, a lot of the money that was flowing into uh, Lebanon uh, was also dirty money from other parts of the region. Uh, and But also the Lebanese banking system was very much internationalized. So uh, you gave the example, you know, in 2019, the economic crisis starts. Normal depositors had no access to their accounts, none, even if they need to get a, a you know operation hospital. Meanwhile, the top bankers, and this has been proven afterward, top bankers, the top political leaders, managed to get their money out. 
Um, and so, you know, today, if I try to get $500 out of an account in Lebanon, France, or Switzerland, I will get asked a gazillion questions. And how come these billions that flew, made it out of Lebanon, by some estimates, there were four to five billion? No one asked them questions. So there's clearly uh, a lot of, uh, I would say, connections between uh, a certain Lebanese financial elite and a certain uh, global uh, financial system, which turned a, for a long, long time a blind eye uh, to Riyad Salemi and to the other bank. In a way, they're, they're, uh, and Riyad Salemi, who is today, as you mentioned, uh, has been charged in, in a number of European countries. He's had his assets frozen. For many years, he was feted as a genius including by international uh, outlets. Um, and to this day, we there haven't been the sanctions, for instance, for many other uh, political leaders, even though we know that they have assets in the hundreds of millions uh, in Europe, in North America, and so forth. Um, so in a way, this isn't a... Uh, while there, there is a real problem in Lebanon with our political and financial elites, um, that they are not, uh, they, this, this political and financial elite is very much connected and globalized and mingles and integrated into uh, the financial elite system. And they send their children to top Ivy League universities. Uh, you know, they wine and dine with the uh, top elites in, in Europe and so forth. And uh, to this day, there are still people in some of these countries that are uh, like Western countries that continue to, to, to defend them. Yeah, and Germany and France also have arrest warrants out for uh, Mr. Salame, but I don't think that he'll be handed over anytime soon. And I'm also wondering, I mean, he obviously had, you know, numerous funds in European banks, in Swiss banks. I mean, was there any... Do you know of any real efforts to look at some of these banking irregularities and to raise these issues? I mean, this shouldn't all just be put on Lebanon. I mean, clearly, yeah. European banks are also complicit in and propping him up. So that's the uh, no. You're right. So there is an pending arrest warrant for him, but Lebanon does not uh, surrender its nationals. So um, he's staying in Lebanon for now. Interestingly, uh, he was also sanctioned by the U.S., Canada, uh, and the U.K. just a couple of weeks ago. And um, that has led uh, as well to the Lebanese Central Bank sanction, I mean, uh, freezing some of his assets. We'll have to see if they do it for all of his assets. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it took for a very long time. And, you know, hopefully there'll be, hopefully be one day, how come they never started earlier to look into some of these sums? Uh, but yes, today... Um, uh, Mr. Salemi through, you know, and again, he's a very sophisticated player, right? So has companies, prime real estate in London, Paris, Brussels, Germany. Um, uh, many, there are investigations and many of these assets have been frozen. Uh, what will happen to them eventually we'll have to see. Uh, but it took a long, long time. Um, and um, whether it's the tip of the iceberg or more, we don't know. Uh, but there are more, I believe, there are assets worth more than 300 million that have been frozen in Europe. 
uh, some of them in accounts, some of them in real estate, and those relate to Mr. Salemi and uh, close affiliates, his brother, his son, his former lover, also, you know, I, one of his assistants. Well, what about the political deadlock or stalemate which has besieged Lebanese politics recently? Um, the the parliament has tried approximately 12 times to appoint a president, and obviously they weren't successful. And we've seen previous elections where people were boycotting um, the, the elections as a form of protest. So where are people's political allegiances right now? No, you're right. So just in terms of the system, so in Lebanon, uh, people vote for their members of parliament, and then the members of parliament uh, vote for the president. Um there has to be a quorum to have this. And it's become, again, this idea of splitting the pie between these five or six strong men in the country. So uh, because they're not agreeing amongst themselves on how to share the pie anymore, they're ensuring that there is no quorum in parliament to select the president uh, because they're still trying to negotiate. So the country is paralyzed. Uh, so right now we haven't had a president for months. The head of the army uh, retires at the end of the year. There's no replacement. There are all sorts of things. So um, again, they, they've rigged the system in a way where they each have, uh, you know, they can paralyze it if they uh, if they want, and and they have because they can't agree on. None of them wants to take responsibility to govern, but they also they can't agree on how to split things. And there is less of a cash cow to divide out right now. It's mostly liability. So they're just waiting. Um, but there's also, this is where as well, so there's a domestic issue, but also these divisions within Lebanon enable uh, regional and international players to come and have an undue influence. So, you know, Hezbollah is close to Iran. The Sunni leadership might be close to uh, Saudi, you know, each one is sort of listening to, to, to whatever. But at this stage, the main problem is really that the traditional political parties, um, you know, they, they don't necessarily think in terms of institutions or the constitution or this is the deadline. They think in terms of the deal. What's the deal to be had here? How do we protect our interests, their own personal interests? And as long as they haven't found the deal, they sort of uh, paralyze the game. Um, and this is where we are at today. You know, it's almost, I mean, the scary part is uh, Lebanon is going through what uh, the World Bank has described as one of the worst uh, economic and financial crises of the last hundred years worldwide. So you have a ship that's sinking, but the captains are busy infighting amongst themselves as opposed to focusing on the needed reforms. And, um, and you know, the population has not, big part of the population voted with their feet uh, in the sense that they leave the country. They're, you know, this how they send remittances back. Um, there were parliamentary elections last year. Uh, we saw uh, a number of independent members of parliament enter, but they were not clear majority. Uh, so, and, and again, I think the system, even if we had a majority of independent members of parliament, what I described as the system you know, a cancer that metastasized in all administrations. You know, every, you know, employees have been appointed. There are still obviously some very honest, hardworking, safe employees, but, you know, they're 
in each administration, there's someone blocking things. Uh, and so they're paralyzing the system. Wow. They're paralyzing the system. Well, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and I just wanted to uh, mention you know, something that happened in 2017 that I was recently reminded of, and that was how the, the prime minister, I think it was Hariri, he went to Saudi Arabia and he was kind of held up there and he resigned and then he withdrew his resignation. So I, I think the, the politics that play out in Lebanon are, are often representative of a, a sort of larger ecosystem of Middle East politics in a way. Correct. No, no, correct. I mean, this was a very uh, troubling, worrying, bizarre turn of events. Uh, uh, Saad Habibi also has citizenship, Saudi citizenship, via his father, who, who was, I mean, it was a, but you're, you're very, you're very right. Uh, but the problem as well, I mean, so there's a dilemma here. Clearly, some of the paralysis in Lebanon is dependent on regional dynamics. And particularly now, you know, I mean, historically with uh, Israel occupying parts of the South for a very long time, but also in the last 15 years, this rivalry between Saudi and Iran, which reflects itself in paralysis. But at the same time, and I think as a Lebanese, it's not just um, regional powers fault or international powers. It really is. We have a political class that is unable. I mean, there it's it's like a game of chicken, and no one is blinking. And meanwhile, the country is is, is paying the price. Um, and so, I, for me, the main responsibility begins with the current political leadership that we have in the country, a political leadership that was inherited by and large from the civil war, uh, and that. Uh, we as Lebanese have not managed to get rid of uh, for various reasons. Uh, one of it is their control of so many services. Uh, some of it have to do with the way the electoral laws are. You know, we can go on and on and, and describe uh, the reason, but the net result is we're there. But the the if you ask me, you know, there is a system that came into being at the end of the civil war, which wasn't. You know, the sectarian system pre-existed the civil war, but it made, was made worse by the civil war. You add to it a form of uh, hyper-capitalism, inequality, foreign intervention. Um, and that system went on. And as I mentioned, it wasn't just political. It had a financial economic component that generated a lot of inequality. Uh, if you ask me my own opinion, I think that system has basically, uh, is, is impossible to resuscitate. It's still there. It still controls, but it's no longer able to reinvent itself. And we're in this sort of Gramscian midpoint. You know, the old world is dying, but the new world for Lebanon uh, is finding it hard to be born. And we're in this sort of interrenium uh, where, uh, you know, all the bad things are, are happening. There's a lack of governance. Uh, you know, this is a country where pretty much there's Everyone relies on private electricity generation because the state only provides about three hours of electricity at best in the country, even though this is a country of four or five million. Uh, this is a country, as you mentioned, that is completely, this currency is free fall. Um, and no one is actually, you know, has no president. And yet those in charge don't seem to be in a rush to address any of 
Well, one final question before you leave. I mean, we've seen recently uh, fighting in the Palestinian refugee camps in the south of the country, uh, closer to the Israeli border. And I think traditionally the Palestinian refugee camps are run by the Palestinian ruling elite as well. And I think a Fatah, uh, a member of the Fatah party was also killed. I mean, do you see this escalating? Do you think the Lebanese army might be deployed or would it be even possible that Israel would intervene if this gets worse? Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I, it happened in Ayn al-Hilu, which is closer to Saida. It's not necessarily by the border. And you're right. Again, it's like the problem with Lebanon is uh, old issues are never dealt with. So they're just left there. Hmm. And the situation of the Palestinians is a very good example. So Lebanon still has a uh, substantial number of Palestinians who were expelled from Israel. Many of those who are today in Lebanon were born in Lebanon, but the Lebanese state does not give them citizenship. So they live in, in, in refugee camp. One of the biggest ones is Henwick. And the state has, uh, has no presence inside these camps. As you mentioned, it's left for governance between Palestinians. And from time to time, uh, they erupt into fighting. Now, the timing of this fighting was a bit suspicious. Was someone trying to kind of create more tension? I don't know. Um, it seems now things have gotten quieter. Uh, mm. Usually the Lebanese army just stays on the outskirts. Um, and there are different mediation efforts and, and so forth. And it looks like for now it has it has uh, quieted. But for me, the, the broader issue is simply, you know, it's a bit like you're, you're building on quicksands. We have all these issues. Instead of actually dealing with them in a, uh, you know, in policies that respect basic rights that actually would give Palestinians their basic rights, but also in return, the state, which is normal for any state, would actually be in charge of providing security, but also education and schooling for these Palestinians. And, you know, nothing is dealt with it. And the problems just accumulate over the years. And now we're starting to see something similar with the Syrian refugees. There are even much larger numbers. Um, and the states say it's not our responsibility, but if you end up being in a country like Lebanon and you have 400,000 children of Syri Syrian children who are not going to school, ultimately it won't become your problem. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, so I'm not saying they have to become, uh, and this is a taboo in Lebanon, that's not at all what I'm suggesting, that somehow they get nationalized in Lebanon. They need to be able to go back to have a safe return to their own country. Uh, when the conditions are right. But what I mean is the absence of good policies just makes things worse and small problems become harder and harder to resolve because uh, the leaders procrastinate on them, not for years, but actually for decades. Well, I think if there are longstanding issues as well, then there have to be different understandings of responsibility. I mean, the, the state can't just say, you know, these kids shouldn't be here. They should be sent back. I mean, these children will obviously have an effect on the socioeconomic uh, conditions of the country. And, you know, people need to, people have a right to education and uh, especially children have a right to schooling. So it, it does become um, something that the state definitely needs to take care of. But uh, Nadim Hori, thank you so much for joining me today to speak about this, you know, longstanding sociopolitical uh, issues in Lebanon and sectarianism. And I hope to have you on Again, maybe perhaps to discuss the Palestinian issue in, in Lebanon a bit more next time. Thank you for having me. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you're able to contribute and make a donation to the show, 
please go to our website, theanalysis.news, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also get onto our mailing list so that you're always updated next time an episode drops. See you next week.